Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's January 1st. Happy New Year! Stand by for an important announcement from Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Yeah, so the important announcement is, I guess, that this, look, this isn't a new episode. We're back with new episodes from the 3rd of January. But we couldn't let the year begin without giving you a little something to listen to. So here are our favourite episodes from the year. We're each choosing one. What? 30 minutes? An episode of Today in History? Can you cope? That's way longer than my attention span. (laughs) We should say, just before we introduce our favourite episodes from the year gone by, firstly, thank Thank you for listening, however you've been listening. But special thank you to those of you who are members of Club Retrospectors. When you sign up to Club Retrospectors, you get a bonus episode every Sunday, which is a full proper episode. We put as much work into those as we put into all of our other uh, episodes throughout the week. But also you get lots of tidbits and and broken up bits and things that couldn't quite make the 10 minute cut. Yeah, and we've had some real gems in the Sunday episode so far, just to toot our own horn, I guess. Um, (laughs) We did one in December that was all about the legendary con man Victor Lustig. He was nicknamed the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. And he, well, you can probably guess what his most audacious scam was. But if you listen to the episode, you'll find out he got up to plenty more. Yeah, I like the episode that we did about the birth of the at-home pregnancy test back in November. This was about Margaret Crane, who was yet again like a a woman in a company who invented a thing and then a man sort of stole it from her and pretended that she hadn't. (laughs) But she was a graphic designer who like, almost inadvertently created... An invention as seismic as an at-home pregnancy test, so you didn't have to go to the doctor to find out if you were pregnant anymore. To join Club Retrospectors, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or join the Club Retrospectors tier at patreon.com slash retrospectors. Yeah, it works out as less than a quid a week. So you're about to hear each of our favourite episodes from the past year. Ollie, you're going to be going last, but what have you picked? I have chosen Finger Licking Lawsuit, which is our episode about the adventures of Colonel Sanders of KFC fame after he decided (laughs) that uh, maybe KFC was finger licking bad. (laughs) (laughs) I went with Captain Blood and the Crown Jewels. It's a really brilliant story that keeps twisting and turning as it unfolds. Not only do you have this kind of mad heist plan, but by the end of it, you arrive at this idea that maybe, just maybe, the king was in on the plot to steal his own crown jewels but your first rebecca what have you chosen as your episode of the year well i have gone for the tale of eva tangway the vaudeville megastar specifically the day she was arrested in louisville kentucky after stabbing a stagehand with a hat pin this is great because it's one of those people you you probably had never heard of until you heard us talk about her. Yeah, one of her big hits was They'll Remember Me a Hundred Years From Now. I just love the hubris of that song title. <laughs> we're making it happen, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's March 1st, 1910, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca and Ali. 
The Retrospectors. So it was on this day that Edwardian megastar and original punk rocker Eva Tangway was arrested after stabbing a stagehand three times with a hat pin. The accounts are quite muddled, but the clearest one I could find is that Tangway was performing in a theatre in Louisville, Kentucky, and she'd asked a prop handler to keep the backstage clear for her entries and exits. And in doing so, he accidentally knocked a stagehand called Clarence Hess down some stairs. And as Hess and some other <laughs> stagehands gathered round to remonstrate with the prop handler, Tangway herself charged in and apparently in the resulting melee she stabbed Hess three times in the abdomen. But apparently when she got to the police station because she was arrested for having stabbed somebody with a hat pin she just produced a roll of bills and cried take it all and let me go for it's now my dinner time <laughs> and they let her go and she was eventually fined $40. But that's celebrity power isn't it that star power and and yeah, we haven't heard of her, so we maybe lose a sense of just how massive Eva Tangway was. She'd had an enormous hit called I Don't Care, of which more later. And she made a lot of money as a headline vaudeville act. People would pay her $3,500 a week. And so mm. she was like, I guess, Madonna at the peak of her powers turning up mm. in your police station. She was in the papers every day for this kind of caper. Yeah, she was an absolute expert on how to play the publicity machine, which was really starting to roar into gear at this time, you know, the start of the 20th century. She was constantly planting fake stories that she'd been kidnapped, that she was fatally ill, that her jewels had been robbed. And one that I loved, she staged a fake wedding to a female impersonator called Julian Eltinger, where she dressed as a man and he dressed as a woman. <laughs> it's like Katie Price, actually. It's like that mashed with Madonna, isn't it? It's just like a real savviness of what the papers need the copy they need to hear yeah edward bernays the nephew of freud and the so-called father of public relations called tangway our first symbol of the emergence from the victorian age and actually one of her hits was titled they'll remember me a hundred years from now which at the time must have felt like a total given so it is peculiar that this many years later she's just pretty much forgotten well let's just talk about how she made her name so she arrived in new york at the age of 19 found work on the variety stage appeared in a show called Hoodoo. And Rebecca, I'm going to turn to you for this. Can you please explain <laughs> what hot-dogging was? Because I looked it up on Urban Dictionary oh, and I suspect it's yes. very different. But apparently she was hot-dogging a chorus girl on stage. They had a fight and then she ended up um, choking her castmate until the girl's face turned blue and she passed out. What's hot-dogging? Yeah. Okay, so let's just put it out there. Eva Tangway's dark side was evident from her very yeah. earliest days. Like, this wasn't just, like, a funny diva flailing her hat pin around. She was... I, there was something wrong with Eva Tangway. Mm. There was, she physically attacked a lot of people. So hot-dogging apparently is trying to draw attention to yourself in the chorus line. Right. So instead of doing the moves the other girls are doing, you're adding your little flourishes. Upstaging. Yeah, mm. upstaging. But when she was called out on this upstaging, yeah, she choked her until she went blue in the face and passed out. And and this was just one of many incidents like this. Apparently on another occasion, in some kind of row to do with a heckler throwing a bread roll on stage, not quite sure, she <laughs> smashed another chorus girl's head into a brick wall. Ooh. There was one incident where she was fined for turning up late for a matinee performance and in response she slashed the curtain of the theatre to pieces with a knife. You know, there was something going on. Yeah, what's amazing though is that this is right at the very beginning of her career, as you say, Rebecca. She's not just playing the entitled star who's been on the 
scene for 20 years. This was right at the beginning. And she then just completely lent into this character and incorporated it into her act, where she had this incredibly unkempt hair. And then on stage, she was just this nonstop sort of gyration, which earned her the nicknames the Cyclonic Comedienne and the Queen of Vivacity. And her costumes were really outlandish. One was constructed entirely of feathers and another was made of newly introduced Lincoln pennies and very skimpy, which landed her on several occasions in legal trouble that she was uh, very quick to publicise as ever. But she'd often also switch her outfits in front of the audience, which kind of raised the erotic stakes yet further. (laughs) Yeah, so... This is where we get to the hit, right? I don't care. It's from the 1904 Mm. musical comedy The Sambo Girl. You can use your own imaginations as to why that is rarely performed now. She was playing the lead brownface role and stole the show with this song by the songwriters Gene Lennox and Harry O. Sutton. Incidentally, it's also the song that Britney Spears, age 10, sang on Star Search. Uh, You can find that on YouTube. And you can also find, I'll put it in the show notes, Tangway's own recording, because it's the only recording she ever made. It's terrible quality, but you get a sense of of what her shtick was, singing this song. And it's kind of, if people do not try to treat me fair, there is naught can amaze me, dislike cannot daze me, because I don't care. That's it, but like (laughs) with a bit more of a compelling personality. But the reason it latched on to her is she'd already established, as we said, that she had this quirky, don't-care personality. That would have been embarrassing to most other women, even performers, wouldn't it? If you had a reputation like that, what made her punky, like you said, Rebecca, is she's embracing it, isn't she? Like, that became her song because it completely recasts this notion from the Victorian days of, like, female hysteria and says, I'm owning this as a badge of honour. I'm nuts, but look at me. Mm. It's so hard to describe what her appeal was because... (sighs) There was like a sex element to the act, but she wasn't sexy, or at least she wasn't sexy in a way that was pandering to a sort of male fantasy of sexiness. If you look at the posters of her, she's got this wild mass of hair, wild. and she's sort yeah, of that's str- the word. she's straddling a backwards mm. chair, wearing almost like a bodycon playsuit. Yeah, but that is what's sexy, isn't it? It's the attitude, it's the uninhibited nature of it. Yes, it's all the attitude, but she's not playing the game. Do you know what I mean? She's not hitting the standard beats of sexiness. No. She's really fleshy as well, yeah. Yeah. and that was all playing into her act too. That she was just this force of nature so it was sexual but she wasn't really sexy it was almost like it reminds me of Mae West yes yeah totally you know like she delivered all these innuendos but she wasn't sexy exactly she was sexy because of her attitude yeah and some of these were like single entendres as well like some of her song titles were go as far as you like kid and I want someone to go wild with me I mean it's not subtle (laughs) and it's interesting actually Ollie that earlier used the word personality because there was this 1911 printers ink article which said she can neither sing nor dance nor recite just the same Eva commands the money the audience wants her she has personality and she then really leaned into that as well and she had a song that came out soon after afterwards that was called personality that went personality personality that's the thing that always makes a hit your nationality or your rationality doesn't help or hinder you one bit yeah and i think it explains why the 1922 recording as you said ollie her only recording and two silent films she starred in just didn't do justice to what her appeal was when you listen to the recording her voice is like it's rough it's pretty unappealing at the time a critic called it a hair shirt to the nerves but (laughs) actually one of the lyrics to I don't care she sang my voice may sound funny but it's getting me the money so I don't care she was so self-referential in her lyrics quite sort of Eminem or something yeah she had another song that was called an animal in the zoo which was all about her being so famous she literally says there's a method in my madness there's meaning in my style the more they raise my salary the crazier I'll be she really actively was after controversy 
that's like the through line through her entire career. And in 1908, she had this production of Salome where the role of John the Baptist was played by George Walker, who was a black vaudeville star, whose head was revealed on the silver platter. He was obviously still underneath it. He wasn't <laughs> you know, decapitated for the role. But then throughout the performance, his eyes followed her as she stripped. And that was very taboo busting for the time. And then she went on to have a publicised affair with Walker, which was scandalous for two reasons. One, because it was interracial, but also he was actually married. So it was like, it was pure box office. Did you encounter the letter to Henry Ford? Oh, yeah, but this is the sad part, isn't it? It is. This is later. Yeah, so she lost her fortune in the Wall Street crash, basically, didn't she? Like, I guess a lot Mm. of people of that era did. Yeah, and she had loads of health problems too that all seemed to come on at once. She had, I think, arthritis, she had Bright's disease. She had everything going wrong with her that possibly could, so she just didn't have a way to make the money back. She also spent wildly. She bankrolled this plan to play baseball at night in 1914. She was actually a sports enthusiast herself, and she predicted correctly that playing games at night would be a really popular thing to do and would actually increase attendance. But this didn't work, and she lost more of her money. Yeah, she winded up in Hollywood, like, opening shops that sold her old costumes and if you think that sounds a little bit Norma Desmond well apparently she was the inspiration for Sunset Boulevard I think that's where the Dance of the Seven Veils Salome thing comes from but anyway she wrote a letter to Henry Ford which we still have this letter is from Eva Tangway of the stage she puts in brackets (laughs) I hope you remember me once you were in the audience when I played Detroit and anyone who has seen me before the footlights is interested in me. It's just heartbreaking, isn't it, already, before you even know what she's going to ask. Mm. I was thinking in the generosity of your heart, you could give me a car. I've always had a car, having owned 11, but now have nothing. I live off a sort of an alley in a small house which is set in back of a big one. There's no view other than the backyards of other houses. It's very sad to have had so much and be cut down to poverty, but my illness prevents me from doing any work. Although I could sing on radio if the programme was without the audience viewing the entertainer. Mm. Yeah. Also, he said no. He, <laughs> he just he got the letter and was like, He didn't nope. ignore it either. Like, he got his secretary to write back and said, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, but don't give away cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it's a good job she wasn't in better health or Henry Ford would have got a serious stab. <laughs> it's May 9th, 1671. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day that a wanted criminal stabbed and bludgeoned a 77-year-old man in an attempted robbery. Nowadays, the poor old man would be on the front page of the Daily Mail from his hospital bed, but in the more rough-and-tumble times of the 17th century, it was his assailant who became front-page news. Yes, he was an Irish adventurer, and his name was Thomas Blood, also known as Captain Blood, which is just too perfect a name to be a real person from history. (laughs) But more important than what his name was, was the location the jewel room of the Tower of London, and he was there to steal the crown jewels. And he was involved in a pretty audacious and quite complex heist, actually, that it involved him getting to know the keeper of the jewels, Talbot Edwards, who lived on the same floor as the jewels themselves. And Blood had donned the disguise of this person and went to see the crown jewels, and he became friendly with Edwards and then returned at a later date with a woman who was pretending to be his wife. And just as he and his fake wife were going to leave, the wife had this violent stomachache and was taken kindly by Edwards to his quarters to rest. And then four 
Four days later, Blood returned, still disguised as this same Parsons, with four pairs of white gloves for Mrs. Talbot, who had shown great kindness to his, inverted commas, wife. And they became friends from there, and even were discussing the idea of introducing Edwards's daughter to the wealthy nephew of the Parsons. So he had this, like, deep, deep plot that he was weaving. Which is what's so clever about it, because I thought when I was reading about this that the moment that he tried to steal the crown jewels must be the moment where his wife, quote-unquote, who's actually being played by an actress called Jenny Blaine, fainted, and then the man's distracted. You've seen the crown jewels, you know where they are, you know where he keeps the key, 77 years old, that's when you whack him on the head and steal the crown jewels. But no, (laughs) elaborate plan where he turns up, like you say, with the gloves, and then builds a relationship, (laughs) and then comes back and does the the, the thing. Because I had always imagined this as a caper, you know? I always imagined it as him breaking in (laughs) in the middle of the night. But it was more of a catfish, if anything. Yes, yes. As you mentioned, Aaron, he discussed with Talbot Edwards the idea that maybe his nephew, who in reality was his real son, could maybe marry Mm. their single daughter. So he suggested they all come back the next day. He'd bring the nephew along. He brought a couple of friends with him. And then as Talbot's wife was cooking a meal for them, he said, why don't we all go into the jewel room and take a look at the jewels? Classic. Well, let's talk about just how bad the security was at the Tower of London (laughs) at this point. Edwards, this 77-year-old keeper of the jewels, basically worked for tips. Like, he lived in the Tower of London, but his job guarding the jewels was rewarded only by people paying him to see the jewels. So Mm. he had this built-in weakness that if you had a convincing enough disguise, as in, oh, I'm a humble parson from the regions, you could just keep paying him to see the jewels and and case the joint. There was really just this grill that was removed from in front of the crown jewels, and at that point, blood knocked out... Edwards just knocked him out cold and they started grabbing the the goodies. So first of all, they had to flatten the crown with a mallet to put it into their bag and then the orb was stuffed down Blood's trousers, which I love. The scepter was too long to put in the bag or his trousers. So Blood's (laughs) brother-in-law, who was also there, had to try to saw it in half. Is that a scepter in your breeches or are you just (laughs) uh, in a rush to get out of the door? And and one giant orb. It's like they've put in all of this set up work. They've got disguises, there's costumes, apparently there were concealed swords. But, like, why didn't they just bring a bigger bag? Yeah, I mean, they've true. seen the jewels so <laughs> many times at this point. You'd think they could have been like, mm, yeah. maybe a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, Edwards then regains consciousness and he starts shouting, Murder, treason, the crown is being stolen. And Blood and his men just dropped the scepter and tried to run away. And as they were running away, they were firing back, also shouting treason in an attempt to confuse their pursuers, <laughs> which I also love that they're like, No, you're the treasonous ones. No, you're the treasonous ones. And he would have got away with it too if it wasn't for those pesky Edwards kids because Talbot mm-hmm. Edwards son just happened to be staying at the, they'd cased the joint they'd done their research it was an old man but they hadn't anticipated for his military serving son happening to be at home when right. they went there and so a chronicler of the time reports the drama very well actually two of them went into the rooms whilst the other third stayed at the door bound wounded and gagged Mr Edwards who had the custody of it the crown jewels and carried away the crown Mr. Edward's son, coming in and finding his father in that condition, pursued one of the villains, shot at him, but missed him, as also the sentinels, but they were so closely followed that two were taken about the Iron Gate. So if his son hadn't come in at that moment and raised the Mm. alarm then they actually probably would have been able to flee with these jewels. Yeah, and it was his friend, a guy called Captain Beckman, who was the one who actually managed to catch up with blood in the end, just as he was about to get on his horse too. So if it hadn't been for those two, they might have been able to get away with it because blood had got away with a lot of stuff in the past. 
Yes. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're getting to this point of the story before saying who Captain Blood is. But let's remind ourselves of where we are in history at the moment. So these crown jewels that he was stealing were actually new jewels, hot off the press, basically, Mm. because the original crown jewels had been sold off or destroyed when Charles I was executed. Interestingly, Captain Blood had actually been on the side of royalty. He was a royalist, and that will come into play in a moment. And he switched to the roundheads in the Civil War when he saw the way the tide was turning. Under Cromwell's government got land in Ireland and then when we had the restoration of the monarchy Charles II's government then took away all the land from the people that had been awarded it under Cromwell which left him seriously pissed off yeah he'd uh, he'd joined together with a bunch of disgruntled Cromwellians and attempted to seize Dublin Castle and to take the governor Lord Ormond prisoner and Ormond was one of these wealthy royalists who had profited well from the restoration but again the plot failed and blood had to flee to Holland now the price on here said but in spite of being one of the most wanted men in England Blood returned in 1670 and was practicing as a doctor in Romford but he wasn't over he wasn't over his beef with Lord Ormond he tried mm. to revenge himself in another like in another incredibly daring plot I don't know if you could really get away with more what did he put down his trousers <laughs> that time <laughs> well he staked out Ormond's home in London Clarendon House and then he tried to abduct him as he returned and he actually did he seized him dragged him onto a horse and there was this scuffle where they, their plan was to take him along Piccadilly, take him to Tyburn Gallows and sort of do this spontaneous hanging. But luckily Ormond had this faithful servant who had followed along behind and managed to get him out of the grasp of the gang. So by this point, Thomas Blood was very much a wanted man. OK, so fast forward back to the Tower of London. He's just been captured. As the soldiers mm-hmm. seized him, he cried, it was a gallant attempt, however unsuccessful. <laughs> Twas for a crown. And then he's taken away. And then he says... I'm not going to give you any information about how I put this together until I speak to the king. Mm. Now, bear in mind, if you're Charles II and you know this guy from what we've just outlined, would you speak to this man who has just (laughs) literally smashed your crown in pieces and put it down his pants? No, you wouldn't. you just let someone hang him, except that is not what Charles II did. He was reputed to have had something of a liking for scoundrels, and so he did actually meet with Blood, and apparently he was quite uh, amused, particularly at Blood's audacity when he said that the crown jewels were not worth the £100,000 that they'd been valued at by the monarchy itself, but only £6,000. And in any case... He was pardoned, which was very much to the disgust of Lord Ormond, for one, who yes. had just <laughs> almost been hanged in the street I mean, by... And what about the guy, who, the 77-year-old man who was just doing his job protecting the crown? He gets knocked unconscious. And that was the right. worst part, because yeah. not only did Blood get pardoned, he got gifted land in Ireland, which would bring him in a revenue of £500 a year. Talbot Edwards received a one-off payment of less than £300 for his heroism. It never got paid to him, I mean... and he died three years later, having never recovered from his injuries. Well, one of the other theories was that rather than Charles just loving a good rogue, <laughs> um, perhaps he saw Blood as a valuable ally who was potentially worth more to him alive than dead. And the theory goes that in later years, Blood may have joined his network of spies throughout Ireland. Yeah, we'd already shown his ability to flip-flop, hadn't he? Right. You know, and he was yeah. obviously pretty conniving. And maybe he had something on Charles II. I mean, he was well-connected. Maybe he knew something about Charles II. There's also this wacky niche theory, although is that Charles II, famously very lavish spender, was cash-strapped, and that maybe he was somehow in cahoots with the whole scheme. It was almost Mm. like an insurance scam. Steal his own crown. The thieves would steal the crown jewels, and then he'd have to borrow loads of money to get new crown jewels. 
Right. <laughs> well, certainly it wasn't popular with the court, the idea of having blood now swan into town. And there was this restoration poet called John Wilmot, who wrote this short poem about him that goes, Blood that wears treason in his face, villain complete in parson's gown, how much he is at court in grace for stealing ormond and the crown. I mean, swanning around is the right verb. By the summer, he was spotted strolling around Whitehall wearing a, quote, new suit and periwig, <laughs> being, quote, extraordinary, pleasant and jocose. <laughs> and for someone with his talents, this was a great time to be hanging around the court because Charles II had a real army of spies listening in on conversations, reporting back to him. And so Blood was kept very busy doing that. And also there's evidence to suggest he was, you know, playing both sides off against the other, <laughs> kind of the same thing he did in the Civil War. Sire, they intend to steal your crown jewels again. <laughs> Guys, let's go get the crown jewels. <laughs> Daddy needs a new periwig. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's March 14th, 1978, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. To this day, KFC's logo still bears a smiling, almost Santa-like portrait of Colonel Harlan Sanders, whose 11 secret herbs and spices made his chicken company one of the top fast food outlets in the world. But behind that smile was a simmering resentment towards the company that he sold that boiled over into a full-blown defamation suit, which came to a quite bitter, though slightly anticlimactic conclusion back on this day in 1978. And I mean, although I've got to say I appreciate your use of simmering and boiling, it didn't go unappreciated <laughs> by me in this culinary lawsuit. It's all gravy. <laughs> no, Ollie, only Arian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just boneless. But Colonel Harlan Sanders wasn't so much simmering as, I mean, if we're going to use a culinary metaphor, his rage was just sliding down the side of the pot in streams by this point in history <laughs> due to this really unusual relationship that he had with KFC, which he had founded and then he had sold out of it in the 60s but he remained as the figurehead of the company but he was probably the least effective figurehead in history because although he was iconic (laughs) appearing in all the ads he was publicly slagging them off throughout the 1970s I mean he died in 1980 if he hadn't died you can only imagine how fractious the relationship would have become it's so typical (laughs) of the American dream though isn't it like it's it feels emblematic of what happens to a lot of these corporations it reminds me of our episode the self-service revolution which was about the first modern supermarket, the Piggly Wiggly, and Clarence Sanders, no relation, who founded that, sold out when the business was at the peak of the market and then got annoyed when he lost control of the business, couldn't let go, and so set up Mm. a rival chain with his own name in the title, if you recall. But it's like a reverse of that, where Sanders' name and image is all over the original chain, and then he's so upset by the quality having sold out to this enormous corporation, which is the rags to riches American dream that he'd lived, that he can't help himself going around telling everyone their gravy tastes like slop. But his face, literally his face, is on the packaging, it's on the door, it's on the commercial. It's not just his name, he's, he's the mascot 
of this thing. Well, that's right. But he'd been going around bad-mouthing the company for so long, as Rebecca said earlier. But actually, this particular lawsuit came about because the branch of KFC in Bowling Green in Kentucky sought damages for libel and defamation to their reputation in particular after Colonel Sanders had gone on the record to a paper called The Courier Journal and said the following. The stuff on the mashed potato, for instance, my God, that gravy is horrible. They buy tap water. Uh, what a, where am I in the States? Anyway, they buy tap water for 15 to 20 cents, a thousand gallons, and they mix it with flour and starch and they end up with pure wallpaper paste. And I know wallpaper paste by God because I've seen my mother make it, he said. And so then he said that it tasted like sludge and then he criticized the new crispy recipe as being like a damn fried dough ball stuck on some chicken. And so he just laid into them. And this particular branch then brought a lawsuit against him. But they lost the case, ultimately, for technical reasons which basically amount to this. He never actually mentioned Bowling Green specifically, and to defame a whole class, that is KFC itself, the statement must be applicable to every single member of that class. So he both didn't defame this individual restaurant, but he also didn't defame KFC as a whole, or at least they couldn't prove that he had done. And so the case, although it ultimately went to the Kentucky Supreme Court, was thrown out and amounted to nothing. And also, I mean, just on a more straightforward basis, there was nothing in his contract saying that he shouldn't give his opinion about KFC. Because why would you put that in his contract? Because he founded <laughs> KFC. Like, no one would have ever imagined that this is what he'd devote a decade to doing. <laughs> uh, no, and in fact, part of his deal when he sold out was that he would not only be the face of KFC, but also that he would be their official quality control tester. Even though that role didn't seem to actually, you know, he, he was basically allowed to say what he thought, but it I couldn't find any evidence that KFC particularly reacted to any of his criticisms. So it wasn't really an official role, but he had just, what a delightfully tense relationship between a corporation yeah. and its mascot <laughs> who hates them. This was just the last thing in a series of public comments that he had made on KFC throughout the 1970s in particular. When the company was sold, he sold it to somebody, I can't remember who now, but then they sold it to Hoiblein, this mega corporation, and they struggled to know what to do with it. They didn't have a background in fast food restaurants. And so the 70s were a difficult time for KFC, not helped by the fact that they had Colonel Sanders saying things like, in 1976, he went out on the road with the New York Times food critic Mimi Sheraton. They went to a KFC restaurant where she describes him going into the kitchen, tasting things, abusing the chef, saying, what's going on here? This is terrible. Yeah, apparently he swore like an absolute trooper. Yeah. So at odds with his grandfatherly southern image as well. <laughs> it's just hilarious, isn't it? Imagine you're like 17 years old, you work in an outpost of KFC for minimum wage, <laughs> then up pops the colonel in a limo, steps out wearing the white outfit, the guy who's on the packaging you serve, comes into your kitchen and goes, this <laughs> tastes like bollock. I mean, you would be, <laughs> you wouldn't know how to respond, would you? What a power trip. You'd be like, well, you made it, man. It's your 11 secret herbs and spices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he laid it on the line. He said, he, he told this reporter, I'm sorry I sold it back in 1964. It would have been smaller now, but a lot better. People see me up there doing these commercials and they wonder how I could ever let such products bear my name. It's downright embarrassing. And this is the same time that he's appearing in all of the TV spots for KFC. I mean, to be fair, from his perspective, his whole thing had always been about quality. And if you mm. think about it, it's kind of why fried chicken is a better fast food than a burger, because anyone can actually grill a burger. It doesn't take that much effort. Whereas to make chicken like he did, he used to pan fry, not deep fry. He added his 11 herbs and spices, having brined the chicken overnight in buttermilk. I mean, it was properly home-cooked southern cooking. 
delivered quickly yeah. or relatively quickly. There used to be a big queue when he started his first franchise outside a Shell petrol station that he ran and built it up from there. So his whole thing was like, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And I've I've right. developed the he was almost the Heston Blumenthal of fast food chicken, right? I've developed the perfect recipe. And then, you know, these huge corporations came along and paid him an absolutely unrefusable amount of money. But the thing they took away was that perfection. Yeah, there was a company executive who was quoted in this New Yorker feature where, again, <laughs> you guessed it, Colonel Sanders is criticising KFC. But this uh, company exec said, let's face it, the Colonel's gravy was fantastic, but you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to cook it. It involved too much time, it left too much room for human error, and it was too expensive. And I suppose that's part of the thing that went on after he sold the company. He had already started turning his thing into a franchise, but at the point at which he sold it, then it turned into the this mega thing with, you know, branches in every part of the world and thousands of outlets and so on. Plus, also, incidentally, they started to experiment with alternative (laughs) foodstuffs, including beef. In 1968, they launched the Kentucky Roast Beef Restaurant, which was this very short-lived chain that started in Las Vegas and then spread from there. But again, the problem was that they were trying to do things, even though this was post him selling out, but they were trying to do things in this sort of high-quality way that just didn't work with the prevailing trend at the time, which was towards cheaper, more affordable, swifter food. And so, you know, it just didn't fit with with, uh, what was going. And I suppose neither did he. That's why he was left behind by what became the KFC juggernaut. Yeah, I mean, when he sold out in 1964, precisely because he was sort of overwhelmed by the success of the chain, it was beyond his personal control. There were 600 franchises in the US and internationally. There are now 22,621 KFCs around the world, which gives you some idea just of of the sheer scale. Well, speaking of other countries, Sanders said himself that he'd travelled to 44 countries, but he said he always preferred American food and particularly that of the southeast. And he said, I've never been struck by French food, only the sauces are good. (laughs) And he said, I've never had the chance to eat anything in Italy uh, except in the Hilton Hotel. So I'm not sure how well-travelled he really was. Uh, But he said that uh, he used to work on a farm as a teenager that was run by a German farmer, and he did like German food. He'd be a phenomenal judge on Bake Off, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, he'd just be like, nope. Just, yeah. Imagine that, like, iconic outfit, but also, like, swearing like a trooper and spitting everything yeah. out and be like, they'd take like shit. What a brilliant TV moment that could be. So that's it. Those were our highlights from 2022, and we hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as we enjoyed listening back to them. And we'll be back on January the 3rd, so join us then for all new episodes. And remember, join Club Retrospectors now to unlock lots of bonus bits. Just click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com slash retrospectors.